0: Let me begin by giving just my own brief history with this book, and then I, I want to let you know how we're going to approach this book. It's 40 chapters, it's a big book in the Old Testament, it's an important book. Uh, it's my favorite book in the Old Testament, by the way. I've never preached through the whole book, I, I've preached through almost half. Um, we're going to take about a year, so expect that, that's pretty fast actually. We're going to cover large sections, uh, like 1 and 2, 3 and four, three one Sunday 4, 5, uh, to 11, believe it or not, and uh, yeah, we're going to cover all the plagues. My history with this book, um, I did two masters at the same time, which was busy, and one of them was in Old Testament studies with an emphasis on Hebrew, and my last class, this was back in '09. it was an intensive study where I had to translate the entire book of Exodus from Hebrew to English. That was fun. It took me a while, and um, for my final exam, the professor just said, I'm going to give you a random chapter to translate. I'm going to tell you which chapter it is. And then, so that was it, I mean A whole chapter to translate from Hebrew to English, talk about the grammar and syntax of theology. Uh, and then, shortly after that, I went to Africa and Cameroon and taught at a Baptist seminary, and I taught undergrad and grad students. In my graduate class, I taught them Biblical Hebrew, and then I did a summer study with them, and guess what I taught them? Exodus. <laughs> so we lived in Exodus for that summer with those students. and That was such a blessing. So um, se- last thing, seven years ago when I was applying for uh, doctoral work, my dissertation was going to be on John, the gospel of John, his use of Exodus. And so my hope, if the Lord allows, is after we finish Exodus, I want to jump into John's gospel. And I think that'll be really sweet. I do. And we'll take a lot longer than John. So uh, that's it. Expect about a year, maybe 10 months. We'll see. Everybody good with that? I thought I was doing Revelation this morning. I got nervous, man. I was like, is that what we talked about? Like, we can do it, but yeah. All right, so Exodus 1 and 2 and in, in the title for this whole series, Rescue, okay, the glory of God in Exodus, and the title of my sermon this morning. We're going to cover Exodus 1 and 2. I'll start with some introductory matters. We'll talk about the book itself, how it's structured, uh, big themes, major themes, and then we'll get into the text. So I'm used to preaching verse by verse. So understand this. When we cover big sections, I will swoop down, we'll look at several verses, but I'll always talk about what comes before and after. I'll always comment on the context. So expect that. But Exodus 1 and 2, the title is, The God Who Sees an acts. And did you catch the, the final part of chapter 2? Did you hear it? God heard. God remembered. God saw. And God, he knew. Man! And we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll get there. We're going to end with that. Um, but the God who sees an acts and the big idea, God sees our suffering, and he saves. God sees our suffering, and he saves. So, Every parent has experienced this. When Clark was a baby, he doesn't remember this, but when he was a baby, he was sitting on the couch with Daddy, and all of a sudden, he started groaning. Uh-oh, here it comes. Right, all over the couch, all over the carpet, and like any good dad, what did I do? I left him in his filth. No, no. <laughs> I picked him up, and I ran to the bathroom. I, I, I had a feeling this wasn't the end, okay? So I pick him up, in, in time seem to stop. Have you ever had a moment like that with your child, time just stops, and I'm running like the flash down our hallway to that close bathroom on the right at first home, and he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and smiles, and I think what he's wanting to say is, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, you take care of me. Blah, All over me, okay? And here's the worst part is when something like that happens, you know, when something unexpected happens, you kind of go, ah. Aww. I went there, bro. And it happened. I'll never forget it. So the situation was I didn't want to give detail, but yeah, it was everywhere and everywhere. The situation was gross. Why well, start a sermon that way? The situation was gross smelly, and disgusting. I knew that I would be taking a great risk by going in, right? (laughs) I would possibly end up wearing some of that gross, smelly, and disgusting, and I did. But I intervened. I intervened. We got him to the bathroom, he finished, and then got him all cleaned up, and I think it happened a couple more times, but hey, God himself intervened, amen? God himself intervened on behalf of of his people Israel. That's what Exodus is all about. I mean, God, he hears. He remembers. He sees. He knows. God intervenes. What we're going to see in Exodus, God intervenes to rescue his people, and he does that for his glory. So kind of the big idea of this book is God's glory through rescue. So the story of the Exodus prepares us for an even greater rescue to come. Jesus came to a world broken and sinful. And he knew that that brokenness and that sin would be applied to him. And, and Jesus didn't just risk a run-in with the gross and the disgusting. I did, I risked it. I didn't know. I thought maybe he was done. Jesus did not merely risk a run-in with the gross and the disgusting. At the cross, he wore it. He wore our pain. He wore our guilt. He wore the punishment that was owed to us. He willingly took it upon himself for our salvation. And all God's people said, amen. So Christ saw our suffering and then he suffered in our place. Let me give you the structure of Exodus. I I, kind of came up with this. It's broad, um, but I think it's helpful. Okay, You can read commentaries and get more specific structures, kind of chapter by chapter, but I see really two big halves in this book, okay? So there's 40 chapters. Exodus 1 to 19 answers the question, here it is, why worship and serve the Lord? That's the first half of the book. It answers the question, why worship and serve the Lord? And then we get to Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. And here we see mission. Everybody say mission. Mission. Mission as the proper response to the Lord's salvation. Right? The Lord rescues us to join him in his mission. Okay? So that's Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6, mission as the proper response to the Lord's salvation. And then Exodus 20 to 40. Okay? So this is the second half of the book, how to worship and serve the Lord. That's the question that the second half answers. So what's the first half? Why worship and serve the Lord? The second half, how? To worship and serve the Lord. The Lord instructs His people in how to worship and serve Him. We serve Him by serving others. And we see that God dwells with His people, right? The tabernacle. And He gives them His law. A law that pertains to living rightly, both vertically and horizontally. We'll, We'll get there. We'll get there. What we see in Exodus, we see throughout all of Scripture, especially with Jesus and the cross. Our worship is our grateful response to God for doing what? For saving us. Amen? I mean, why worship and serve Him? Because we've been saved. We were headed to hell forever, and God in His grace has saved us, not because of anything we've done. We surely don't deserve it, but in His grace, He has called us out of darkness into light, and our appropriate response is what? Worship. Service. Amen? Amen? And this is not just an Old Testament idea. We see it in Romans. Let me just give you Romans, the whole book. Okay, so Romans 1 to 11. Why worship the Lord? Romans 12 to 16. How to worship the Lord? Let's just read Romans 12, 1 and 2. So what Paul does in Romans 1 to 11, he unpacks the gospel. He unpacks the, the mercy of God seen through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection for sinners. And then Romans 12 Here he begins, this is what it looks like to respond appropriately to God's grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that's chapters 1 to 11, the first half of the book, to present your bodies as a living, what? Sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Which is your, what is it? Your spiritual or reasonable, right? I mean, uh, logikos, I mean, it means... Logical, right? It makes sense. I mean, God saves you? What's logical? What's the logical response if God saves you? You worship Him with your life, your whole life. Okay, so again, we're going to see that time and time again in our study. Uh, Let's do some big context. So let's look back to what's before Exodus? Genesis. So where does Exodus fit in God's story? Where does it fit in God's story? There is a very seamless transition between... Genesis and Exodus. So Genesis ends with God's people, Israel. Where are they? They're in Egypt. And Exodus begins with the people of Israel where? Still in Egypt, right? And yet we know that this is not where God's people are to remain. So the end of Genesis prepares us for God's great rescue of his people, the Exodus. Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25. Listen. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. Oh, oh. can you I mean, can you sense it, the expectation? God will what? He will visit you. Who's coming? Who's coming? God's coming. And bring you up. So he's not just going to come and observe. He's going to come and act. He's going to come and rescue. He will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Genesis ends on this note of hope or faith in God's promise to Abraham. So divine visitation is coming. Get ready. And, you know, God is described throughout Scripture as the coming one, the one who comes to save. I, I love the scene in Luke 7. JB, who is. John the Baptist, right? He's in prison. He's probably wondering why am I in prison? <laughs> I thought the king had come. What's going on? So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question. Are you the coming one? Or should we expect another, right? Are you the Savior? Well, of course, the answer is what? Yeah, of course he is. Let me quickly review Genesis. How does Genesis begin? Barashith, Bara, Elohim, right? In the beginning, God created. God creates some things, everything. He does it for his glory. What is kind of the pinnacle of his creation? His image bearers, Adam and Eve. He made them so they might be with him, but then go out and spread his glory by making more image bearers. And and what happens? They seek their own glory. They rebel against God. They seek self-rule and not coming under God's rule. It's the fall, Genesis 3, and then sin comes into the world, and with sin, death. And then it gets progressively worse. We get to chapter 6 of Genesis, and we see that mankind, their thoughts all the time are what? Wicked. They're evil. And God sends the flood. God judges sin. He's holy, right? He he judged Adam and Eve. They got booted out of the garden. All of us have been born out of the garden because of that, right? Right? And then God floods the earth. And then mankind unites in their rebellion against God, the Tower of Babel, chapter 11. And God judges them. He causes them to what? To be confused, right? Changes their languages. And they scatter, and you're thinking it's over. Man, God is done with humanity. No, then we get to chapter 12. And what do we find in chapter 12? We find what's called the Abrahamic promise or the Abrahamic covenant. Paul would say, this is the beginning of the good news. Okay? Let's read just three verses in chapter 12. Now the Lord... Now, again, you got to read this in context. This is after the fall, the flood, and Babel. Okay? And how does God respond? With the promise of rescue. And we see that, actually, in each of those episodes. So I don't have time to go into all that, but... Yeah. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And here's what i want to focus. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Abraham's offspring, blessing will come to the world. So, when we think about the Abrahamic covenant, Everybody say four P's. Have you ever found four P's in a pod? Man, that's like a mega P, right? So I don't know why I said that, but four P's. Here's a clear way, a memorable way of thinking about the Abrahamic promise. People, place, presence, and peace. God promises what? A great people, a great place that he will, again, be with them. But what makes that place so special? God's presence And God's peace. Amen? That is the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 15, 13-14 and 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. Where's that? Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 16 And they shall come back here, right? The promised land. And the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, in Exodus we see that the time is now for God to intervene and rescue his people. In Exodus 1 and 2, which is our passage for this morning, sets the scene. It sets the scene for us. So, one more thing. The, the, The final, and this is again helpless, this is context. The final Third of the book of Genesis tells the story of who? Joseph, right? And what do we learn? And I think it's chapter 37 all the way to 50. God is revealed as the sovereign Savior. That's really important going into Exodus. That we have this image of God as the, what? He is the sovereign Savior. He's sovereign in salvation. Okay, Genesis 50 verse 20 Joseph says to his siblings, his bros, (laughs) "What good bros? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done—the saving of many lives." Again, this theme carries over into Exodus. God is sovereign in salvation; it is His work, and it is His for his, for His glory. So, what is Exodus about? Here's the big idea. We are rescued for relationship and that for God's glory. We are rescued for relationship and that for God's glory. It could be argued. I mean, I could argue right now, I guess I will, that the overarching theme of all scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that God relentlessly pursues a people for relationship with himself for his glory. And this theme is beautifully unfolded in the book of Exodus. So here are the major themes. I got one, two... 3.5, 4, 5, 6, 7. And we're going to just rapid fire. Here are the major themes that we're going to revisit time and time again in our study. Major themes. Number one, God is faithful to keep his promises. His plans will not be thwarted. Okay? His plans cannot be stopped. God is faithful. He will keep his promises. That's number one. Number two, now this is so big. God reveals himself to his people. Who is the Lord? That's a big question in Exodus. God desires for people to know Him. God doesn't operate in a vacuum, but rather reveals Himself in time and space to be known. And when He's known, He gets what? Glory. Yahweh, the Lord, wants the whole earth to know who He is, and He does this through His mighty deeds. So, three examples. Exodus 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know... That I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. When God saves his people, Egypt is going to know that he is the Lord, right? That's really big. Exodus 10:2 That you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Okay, So what God does in rescuing His people, it's so that the future generations of the people of Israel might what? Might know that He is Lord. Exodus 14.4 And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory. Right? There it is! I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When God rescues, his glory is on display so that we might know. God wants us to know. Isn't that great? Remember the deists? We've, I've talked about them before. I, I talked about the deists with our youth, Thomas Jefferson. Some of our founding fathers believed that you know, God simply created and then went on permanent holiday. Okay, I'm going to kind of get things going. I'm going to wind things up, and I'm out of here. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, when He comes to us, He reveals Himself to us. He desires to be known for His glory. Amen? He's personal. God is connecting. If you get nothing else out of today, get this. God is connecting knowledge of Himself to glory. God gets glory because people know Him. And they know Him through His signs and wonders. They know Him his great acts of rescue. Alright, Gospel of John. I told you there's a really sweet relationship between John and Exodus. So, the Gospel of John represents the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament book Exodus. The signs of Yahweh, the signs of the Lord, and by signs I mean the miracles, right? The signs of the Lord serve a purpose, not, not simply to wow and excite, but to evoke Knowledge and faith, which in turn leads to God getting what? Glory. John 20, 30 and 31. This is John's purpose statement. John says, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. John is saying, the miracles that I've written down and recorded, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that, you may have life in his name. Whoa. Another big theme, and we're going to see this a lot, is theophany. thea who, what? What'd you say, Chris? Who's ever heard of that word, theophany? Theophany. So, more on this next time. I almost said next week, but next week's Easter Sunday. I'm going to preach on the resurrection. But Exodus 3... What's the example of a theophany? So a theophany is a visible manifestation of God. That's a very simple definition. But why does God do that? Why does God make himself known? God reveals himself throughout Exodus to instill confidence, right? Oh, snap. Look at that pillar of fire. Ooh, we got God on our side, right? I mean, to see that... To know that, yeah, you know, the Egyptians are pursuing us, but God has shown up. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, like the Lord is with us. That instills what? Confidence. It instills faith and fear, holy fear, dread, awe. And it's meant to bring glory to God himself. So, theophany, right? These visible manifestations. Burning bush is a great example. We'll talk about that shortly. But theophany was God's way of declaring to his people, "Hey, I'm with you. I'm for you. Trust me. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm for you. Trust me." Jesus shows up. I'm here. I'm with you. I'm for you. Trust me. Some examples of theophany. What is a theophany? A visible manifestation of of God. Okay? Why? What's the purpose? To instill confidence, faith, fear. Again, fear can be, fear is not the trembling, but wow, reverence, all respect. So burning bush, Exodus 3, Exodus 13 and 14, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. We'll talk about all that. Exodus 24, the presence of the Lord on top of Mount Sinai, a devouring fire. How gnarly and cool is that? We'll get there. Exodus 40. What is the climax of Exodus? The tabernacle is complete, and the glory cloud fills the temple. God is with his people, visibly with his people. Isn't that amazing? God reveals himself. And why does he do that? It's for his glory. glory. Here's another theme. God rescues his people for worship and mission. We've already talked about that. God takes the initiative in salvation, Right? Yahweh reveals himself in Exodus as a mighty warrior who fights on behalf of his people. Next, God is mighty and powerful. There is none like him. We're going to see that with the plagues, okay? <laughs> There's all these Egyptian deities. We'll talk about them in the weeks ahead. But when God acts, it's like, what? They nothing. They can't hold a candle to the one true Lord. God is mighty. God is powerful, and he has no rivals. Amen? Who can save but our God? What's the answer? None. Next, God is present among his people. Next, God is gracious and merciful. Exodus 34. He is gracious and merciful. Now, this next section, again, this is looking ahead. And every week when we we get together in Exodus, we're going to answer a few questions. What does this particular passage teach us about God? Okay, And then how does this passage point to Jesus? Those are two questions we'll answer every week together. You ready? Good? Alright, so how does Exodus point to Jesus in the gospel? Now pay attention here. Everything in scripture points to who? Points to Christ. So how does this book point to Jesus? Well, there was a first exodus, but guess what? There's going to be a new exodus. Amen? And it's already happened. Christ did it. So, the first exodus became a paradigm for God's future salvation act. Whenever Israel, or later on the Jews, thought about God's rescue, they looked back to the exodus, and more specifically the Passover lamb, right? God's gracious substitution for his people, when you get to Isaiah, the context of Isaiah is very similar. God's people are in exile, right? They're slaves. And what do we see? And I don't know if you know the answer here, okay? Unless you read Isaiah last night, the whole thing. Take you quite a while, right? But Isaiah 40 to 55, read it carefully, and the language is filled with, what? Allusions back to the first exodus. God is promising a second exodus, What he did for Israel, he would do again in the future. How is the suffering servant described? As a lamb who would be pierced and crushed for his sin, no, for ours. His punishment brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. So, again, new Exodus, okay? So, how does Exodus point to Jesus in the gospel? There's gonna be a new Exodus, there's gonna be a new Moses. Who's the better Moses? Christ, a new deliverer, prophet, and priest of God's people. I'm sure most of you have heard this passage. This is Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Okay, not Moses, but someone like him from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, fast forward to Luke 9. What happens in Luke 9? I once preached at a... Um, Korean church in Boston, Luke 9. There you go. Haley's always like, is that that it? Yeah, that was my story. (laughs) I just thought of that. But in Luke 9, 35, we have the transfiguration, right? Jesus is transfigured on the mountaintop. His clothes become dazzling white. Who speaks? God, the Father, but who shows up? Moses and Elijah. Are we familiar with this story? Okay, the transfiguration. Listen to verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. That's a direct reference back to what? Deuteronomy 18:15. God's gonna raise up someone like Moses from among you, and to him you shall listen. And the father says, on the mount of transfiguration, listen to him. Probably the coolest thing in Luke 9. You know, Moses and Elijah are having a talk with Jesus, and the Greek says. They were discussing his exodon. That's a Greek word. His departure, his exodus. Wow, okay. That wowed me, but maybe not you. (laughs) New exodus. There's going to be a new covenant, okay, because there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of blood in the Old Testament, right? I mean, these covenant rituals, animals are being killed as a substitution in place of God's people. A lot of ceremonies. But God promises a new covenant, an internal covenant, that he's going to actually one day write his law on the hearts of his people. He's going to give his people a new spirit and a new heart with a new mind. He's going to put his spirit in them. And then finally, how does Exodus point to Jesus in the gospel? There's going to be a new relationship, a new presence. God would dwell with his people once again. As he tabernacled amongst his people during their time in the wilderness... He would tabernacle in a new way through Jesus Christ. You're all familiar with John 1.14. The word became flesh and the Greek tabernacled among us. God showed up again in Jesus Christ. God with us. Emmanuel. Amen? So new Exodus, new Moses, new covenant, new relationship. All right, let's go to our passage. What's going on? What's going on? In Exodus 1 and 2. If you're filling in the blanks, number 1. We have the beginnings of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. We have the beginnings of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Again, what was one of the big themes? God's faithful. Faithful to keep his promises, right? Exodus 1-7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. What was one of the Ps of the Abrahamic covenant? What was the first P? A what? A great people. And what's happening with Israel? They're multiplying and they're becoming a great people. We're seeing the beginnings of the fulfillment of God's promise. Again, this looks back to the creation story where God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And it looks back, of course, to Abraham and God's promise of a great people. So Exodus begins really on a very positive note. God's promises are coming to fruition. So again, you're reading Exodus 1, you're like, oh yeah, it's happening. Whoa. (laughs) Next, God's promises to Abraham are threatened. And that's the passage that Brother Aaron read for us, uh, verses 8 to 22. So listen again. I'm going to read verses 8 to 11, and then 15 and 16, and then verse 22 quickly. Now there arose a, a new king over Egypt. "...who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land." So he saw this growing people as a threat to his kingdom. Therefore, as a result, they they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens." They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, Pithom and Ramses. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other, Puah. I like that name, Puah. Puah. I don't know. When he served as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall what? Kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. But in order for a people to continue, you need boys and girls, right? So if you kill all the boys, what's going to happen? That people is going to cease to be. So there appears now no hope. <laughs> the king has commanded not only harsh treatment for the people of Israel, right, but put taskmasters over them, but the annihilation of the entire race. Somebody say, oh No! That was good. Whoever kid said that, that was right on the money. Thank you, sweetie. The seed promise is being threatened. The seed promise? Yeah, remember back in Genesis 3.15? From Eve, right? There'd be a seed that would crush the serpent. And then we get to Genesis 12.3. And from Abraham's offspring, what? All the nations shall be blessed. But it looks like now, maybe that promise isn't going to come to fruition because Pharaoh, he's put forth this edict, kill all the boys. But God, but God intervenes amidst difficulty and seemingly hopeless situations and brings hope and restoration for his glory. What is impossible for man is possible with God. Amen? I mean, listen, can you imagine being alive in this place at at this time? Hearing this, seeing this, it's over. God's promises are done. Oh, no, 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 no. God is faithful to the end. It's true. What he promised, he will bring to fruition. Now, the irony here, this is very ironic. The irony is that the cruel fate that Pharaoh wishes upon Israel actually becomes his and his own people's fate. He wants to drown the babies. What happens to Pharaoh and the Egyptians? They are what in the Red Sea? They're drowned. So at this point, the people of Israel need rescue. So next, God provides a rescuer. He always does, right? He always provides a rescuer. This is Exodus 2, 1 to 15, but I want to read Exodus 2, 1 to 6 in verse 10. Now listen up. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife with a Levite woman, a woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child. <laughs> What does that mean? I'm going to comment on. It. That's actually really important. The fine child, who's ever said that to somebody? A pretty child or a handsome, a fine child. She hid him three months when she could hide him no longer. She took him. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him, her brother. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, what? She saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, I want to comment on... (laughs) She saw that he was a fine child. What does that mean? The Hebrew word here translated as fine is the same word translated as good in Genesis 1 and 2. So whenever God made something, it was was good. It was good. Same word. And I would argue that this is an intentional echo from Genesis. And that we're meant to see Moses as a new Adam. Adam. Right, One that would be God's instrument to bring his glory into the world by reflecting his image well. A new mankind, a new people is being formed, Israel. And this is further supported by Exodus 4, where God speaks of Israel as his son. Do you remember that? He's my son. He's my people. Here we see God's providence at work. Pharaoh's daughter, man, she ignores her father's edict to eliminate all male Hebrew children and she rescues the baby. And here's the good news the child who was rescued would be a rescuer. Moses was rescued to rescue. Christians, if you're a believer, look at me. You have been rescued to rescue. Amen? God rescues us to join him in his rescue mission. All right. Almost done here. Moses, the Redeemer, foreshadowed. Exodus 2, 11 and 12. One day, Moses had grown up, right? So he's grown up. He's a man. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way. Close is clear. Look that way. Okay. Moment. (laughs) And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, killed him, right, and hid him in the sand. Exodus 2, 16 and 17. So, you know, it found out that Moses did this. Pharaoh's not happy. He's after him. And so Moses flees. Flees to the wilderness. And here we are in 16 and 17. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and what? The text says, and saved them. And water their flock. <laughs> That's funny. He saved them. Water their flock. These two events reveal Moses as the rescuer of his people, right? The Egyptian is treating the Israelite harshly. Moses intervenes. You got these shepherds come and drive out these ladies who are trying to water their dad's flock, and Moses intervenes. Again, these two events prepare us for the greater deliverance to come. Last point is this, and this is that last passage. God remembers his covenant to Abraham. Man, this is so good. This is Exodus 2, 23 to 25. God remembers. Now, that's, does God forget? Is that what that means? Does God forget? Of course not. Some of you are wondering, what does that mean that you know God remembered? Why would God have to remember anything? He's all-knowing. We'll talk about that. Let's read quickly Exodus 2 23 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And what did they do? They cried out for help. That's really important. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God is aware of Israel's suffering. He hears their cry for help and he responds to their cry for help. He remembers his promises. Again, that's very interesting. What does it mean that God remembered? Had he forgotten his promise? Aaron, do you think he forgets? I don't either. Dave, do you think God forgot, had a day off? No, of course not. He's perfect. He's all wise, all knowing. So, what does this mean? One of my professors, man, maybe I'm biased, but probably wrote the best commentary on Exodus, Doug Stewart. He says, The Hebrew zakar, meaning remember. Okay, so that's the Hebrew word for to remember. The Hebrew zakar, remember, is idiomatic for covenant application rather than recollection. Recollection is what? Ooh, I'm at the grocery store. I know Haley said, get this. Oh, okay, now I, I, I recollected it. That's, I forgot it. I had a, a momentary lapse, uh, but now, I, okay, now. Get the, what Haley? What do we, toilet paper, I don't know, something. In other words... This is, Stuart continued, to say God remembered his covenant is to say God decided to honor the terms of his covenant at this time. Here's what it means. God is saying, it's time. When God remembers his covenant, he's saying, it's time. It's time. So you better get what? You better get ready, because it's time. Now notice the four actions of God highlighted in Exodus 2, 23-25. God heard, oh, God remembered. God saw. In the Hebrew verb there means he considered. He considered. And God knew. And that word means he was concerned. God was concerned. He cares. God heard. God remembered. God saw and God knew. What do we learn about God from these verses? God sees and knows all. Right? Check. God is faithful. And God is compassionate. God is compassionate. Motivated by compassion and faithfulness, God acts to save his people. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God is loving. He's gracious. He saw. He knew. He was concerned. And he knew it was time. It was time to act on his saving promises. The world, because of sin, is marked with suffering, pain, and death. And God, in His grace, has responded to this. Again, the Exodus points us to the greater act of deliverance to come, the gospel, the coming of Jesus Christ. Here are three practice steps this morning. Number one, God is faithful and sovereign. God is faithful even in seemingly hopeless situations. Again, I mean, can you imagine? You're enslaved to this mighty, powerful nation. And not only are they giving you work you can't do, but they've now decided to kill all the male children. I mean, what's going to happen over time? This nation's going to be no more. But God promised. But God is faithful. So, God is faithful and sovereign. Here's the application. Trust Him. Trust Him. Number two, God hears us. If you've trusted in the Son, if you've trusted in Jesus, then you have the Father's ear. Number two, God hears us, so pray. Pray. Call out to God. I mean, all of us who are saved, our salvation began when we're made alive by the Spirit to see our sin, to see the beautiful Savior, and to call out to Him for help. Lord, save me. Help me. And if you've done that, guess what? You're saved. Amen? And maybe you haven't done that yet. And I would entreat you, I would implore you, call out to God for help. Plead, Father, save me by your Son. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection applied to me. Number three, God acts on behalf of his people. Serve him. This book is all about rescue, rescue for God's glory. And how should the rescued respond? We serve. We worship. Service, worship, and mission are the proper responses to God's saving work in our lives. So Exodus reveals God as a God of rescue. What has God done to rescue us? He sent his son. He saw our helpless, hopeless state. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves. All of us dead spiritually. All of us born outside of the garden None of us able to pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and live a perfect life. None of us can do anything to save ourselves. Only Christ. And He came. Amen? And He lived the life we could not live. And He died the death we deserve. And He rose again, proving that His saving work worked, that death has been defeated, that Jesus is the way, and that by trusting in Him, you can be forgiven of all your sin and brought into God's family. What do we need rescuing from? Sin. God's wrath. And in Christ, there is rescue. Amen? And how do the rescued respond? Service. Worship. A life committed to the glory of the King. So I would, again, encourage you this morning, if you have not, repent and believe. Repentance means turning from your sin. Right? So you're going this way, turn around and go towards the Lord. Really, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repent, turn away, and then you turn to something. Turn to Jesus in faith, trusting Him that what He did and what He did alone is sufficient for our salvation, right? He did it all. He died the death we deserve. He rose again. In Christ, there is salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in Christ, Your Son, salvation has been provided, salvation is found. We thank you for the Bible and the grand story of rescue and redemption that we read from Genesis to Revelation. We thank you that all Scripture is not only breathed out by you, God. It's not only useful or beneficial for teaching us, for reproving us, for correcting us, for training us, but all Scripture bears witness to Christ, who he is, and what he's done to save us. I want to pray for anyone here this morning, Father, who is not... Trusted in Jesus. Move on their hearts. Make them alive to see their sin in light of your holiness, to see the wrath of God they deserve, but to see at the same time the good news that Jesus has made a way through his life, death, and resurrection for sinners to be forgiven and brought back into a saving relationship with God simply by trusting in him and turning from sin. So save the lost this morning and father lastly for the saved for those who would say i'm a child of god i've trusted in jesus i pray that we would live lives of full service to you in response to what you've done for us that out of gratitude god we would serve you well always seeking your glory and praying and seeking opportunities to make this good news known to others and we pray all this in jesus name and all god's people said